Me? I love coaching. Now, I'm going to say this again, just so you didn't think it was a mistake the first time I said it. For me, success is not about the wins and losses. It's about helping these young fellas be the best versions of themselves on and off the field. Hit it! I want to rock right now. I'm your host and I came to get down. I'm not internationally known, but I'm known to rock the microphone. Man, you corny! <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome back or welcome to Season 10 of the Raise Your Game Show. I'm your host, Alan Stein Jr. The focal point of this season is on core values and the principles, tenets, and standards that make up the foundation of what we believe and how we behave in every area of our life. More importantly... Why having unparalleled clarity and conviction in our core values will drastically improve our decision-making, our performance, and our fulfillment. Joining me today is someone I've admired from afar for a while, and this is actually the first time we've met. Yes, via Zoom. I have so much admiration and appreciation for her perspective and the content she puts out consistently on social media. Lauren Johnson is a mental performance coach that lives by the motto, Elite by Choice. Her mission is to help people improve their lives by making better decisions. She's been entrusted by professional sports teams like the New York Yankees and world-class brands like Google and Johnson & Johnson. For more on Lauren and to get her free weekly mental workout, check out laurenjohnsonenco.com. In this series, Lauren and I will be discussing her three primary core values. Reality, relationship with discomfort, and adaptability. In today's episode, we'll be focusing on reality. But before I dive in with Lauren, I'm excited to announce the release of a new book I co-wrote with my great friend and colleague, Rich Szyslowski. It's called The Sideline, A Survival Guide for Youth Sports Parents. Are you a youth or high school sports parent? Do you know a youth or high school sports parent? Are you a youth or high school coach? Do you know a youth or high school coach? Do you run or manage a youth or high school league or organization? If you answered yes to any of those questions, please visit thesidelinebook.com now. Once again, that's thesidelinebook.com. Trust me, it's a game changer. And now here's my conversation with the fabulous Lauren Johnson. Lauren, before we dive into your specific core values, can you speak to the importance of having clarity on core values, uh, you know, from a, from a macro level. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, when you know what your values are, I remember somebody said this to me once, you'll never be upset when you follow your core values mm. and you use your core values as your compass. And so I think what it does is it keeps us in alignment of what we care about and what really matters to us. And I think a lot of times when, you know, we stay in jobs too long, we're in relationships for too long, or, you know, we continue down a path that maybe is not only unhealthy, but it's not enjoyable in some way. A lot of times it's because we're out of alignment. And sometimes we don't even realize it if we're not aware of what our core values are in the first place. For sure. So kind of using them as a North Star and almost the filter of can I make most of my decisions in alignment with these core values? If we kind of use that as our guide, then we're, we're most likely steering in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's no different than a, than a company mission, a company vision, a, you know, a company's core values, or even like an athlete's core values. And 
all of those things that whether it's a company, an individual, an athlete, a, a surgeon, a, a soldier, whatever that is, your core values are like your coffee filter. You know, there, there's, there's benefits to, to the grinds. We need those, but we don't necessarily want to drink it. You know, that's like the worst ever. If you've had like a bad coffee filter, you overfilled it and suddenly you, you take like a big swig and you got like all these coffee grounds in your mouth. It's like the worst. And so I think that's what these core values act as, is they act as really a filter to help direct our, our actions, our behaviors, and our decisions. Love that. Great analogy, by the way. But, so let's go ahead and dive into your first core value, uh, which is reality or, or acceptance of reality. And I was so excited when you positioned that as a core value. Uh, first and foremost, I find it very unique. You know, we've done an entire season uh, speaking to high performers like you on core values. Uh, and this one really stuck out as being very unique. So I, I would love to hear uh, why this is a core value, kind of how you define it and how you integrate this into your life. You know, this has a little bit of a backstory. I, I think like, like many people, like my life growing up was certainly not perfect. Um, I grew up in a home where, um, you know, there was oftentimes a lot of fighting, uh, a lot of turmoil and, and then, you know, as I got older, there were some other traumatic events that happened. You know, my best friend took her own life when at 15 and my parents got divorced when I was 10. And so there was a lot of things that kind of at a, at, at a younger age kind of woke me up to what really matters in life. Mm -hmm. And I will never forget, it was actually when I graduated from high school. So all those things I just mentioned, I, I've been through by the time I'm 18 and I graduated from high school and my mom wrote me a letter. And in that letter, she wrote, life is a cycle of darkness and light. Your most important battles will be hard fought, but well won. You can't go around the darkness. The only way is through it. And on the other side is the really good stuff. And that stuck with me because I think what my mom did such a good job of is teaching me that the reality is life is not always going to be perfect. Things are not always going to go your way, but some of those things are the very things that create who we become and they help us to kind of create our, our vision, create the things in our lives that we do care about. And so to me, when I look at mental performance and what I do, it's not ignoring reality. Like performance is not all sunshines and rainbows. Actually, most of the time it isn't, right? Of course. Probably about one, one to 10%, okay, max, is like, is, is really that, that shining light that we all, we all hope performance can be. And so what that really leaves us with is accepting our reality and choosing our response. And that's what I really think mental toughness and mental performance is if we just boil it down is that accepting our reality, it doesn't mean you have to like it. It doesn't yeah. mean that you lay down, you're like, well, this is life, I guess we're just gonna sit here. But it is looking at whatever you have going on in the face and going, this is what I'm gonna do about it. Or this is how I'm gonna respond to it and choosing your response. And I think you cannot respond effectively without accepting your reality to some degree. Not, don't have to like it, but accepting the the position you're currently in, being honest about it, and then choosing a response. Oh my gosh. 
so many threads off of that we could dive into. I, I love the concept and you were very intentional about using the word choose when choosing a response, uh, that it doesn't have to be a knee jerk reaction uh, or, or, or emotional reaction, that we can actually take a beat, take a breath, accept what is right in front of us. And I also love that you made the distinction that doesn't mean we have to like it, doesn't mean it's a preference, um, but we're going to choose a response that's going to improve our situation or make things better. Um, one of the first thoughts that pops into my head is kind of this epidemic of toxic positivity that's running rampant through the world where people are almost telling you to just kind of suppress all of the quote unquote bad stuff and just smile and act like everything's great and to just be positive even when you're not feeling positive. And I feel like there's an inherent danger in that. So if I'm, I'm hearing you correctly, it's saying, hey, I'm going to feel what I'm going to feel. I'm going to pay attention to everything that happens, but I'm going to deal with it and I'm going to move forward, thus empowering you. Am I hearing you correctly? Yes. Oh, good. Yes. I mean, I, and, and exactly to your point, like when it comes to positivity and all of that, um, I, I just think like, the need to be positive is such BS. I mean, what it's what it what we're doing is we're saying li live in fairy world, like live in live in rainbow land, and just like stick your head in the sand. Let's just pretend like none of this is going on. Like, what the hell does that do? When the hell has sticking your head in the sand and just pretending things don't exist ever solved it? It doesn't. No. So I actually so my first dose of this was actually when I graduated from my master's program uh, in performance psychology. And I graduated, and when I did, I believed that positivity was the answer and negativity was the problem. Wow. And I go, you know, I'm like three months into like working and like doing the work. And at one point I like stop and I'm like, okay, if that's true, why can't I stop my negative thinking? Why is it that sometimes when I'm hard on myself, it actually helps me? And so I started to ask these questions and I was like, am I mental coaching wrong? Like, does everybody else, does everybody else like know how to do this and just, I'm, I'm not figuring this out. And then I, I learned that like this gray, I, I noticed there's this gray area that sometimes um, we forget, right? And what results in this kind of, you know, toxic positivity or, or need to be positive and, and eliminate negative. And it's this gray area that we often forget in this idea that productivity is more important than positivity or negativity. Mm. Meaning positivity can be productive, but it can also be unproductive. Negativity can be unproductive, but it can also be productive. And I'll tell you why. If you're driving on the freeway and there's a huge sign that says road closure ahead, you don't want to ignore that, <laughs> right? We wanna, we wanna welcome that information and what you're doing is you're noticing the negatives of your situation. And so that can be really beneficial, right? Because we can plan our detour. It can plan like, well, okay, what are we going to do if this happens? You know, it's the same with mental contrasting, you know, like really visualizing what you want to have happen is a great thing, but also visualizing what could go wrong can actually help you plan for what to do if and when that occurs. Absolutely. Meaning you have a better response to it, right? So all negativity isn't bad, um, but there is an unproductive side, right? And just like being negative to be negative uh, is not always productive, right? Like just telling yourself like you suck and like beating yourself up. Like oftentimes it doesn't result in like forward momentum, right? right? And so that's where it can become unproductive. 
And then the same with the same with positivity. Like to your point, like the toxic positivity, like spraying perfume on a bad smell, <laughs> it only makes it worse, right? So like that, like just being positive is not always productive, but choosing to find the opportunity in the struggle, that can be productive. Absolutely. And that's a different form of positivity. So I think, you know, being positive isn't always productive and being negative isn't always unproductive, but wisdom is knowing the difference. Mm. And that may look a little different for each individual. For sure. And, you know, other thoughts that are popping up as you're saying this, I think we also have to be careful about labeling things as good or bad. You know, even in the, the letter that your mom wrote, you know, the, the darkness is going to be tough. It's going to be adverse. It's going to be challenging. But that doesn't mean that it's bad, especially if the darkness is the conduit to growth and improvement and evolution. So we just want to be careful about labeling these things. And that's why, you know, especially now as a father of three young children, uh, I'm really sensitive about how we talk about emotions with each other, because I don't want my kids to think that feeling frustrated, irritated, jealous, like those are not bad emotions. They're just emotions, just like joy and elation and happiness. Those are just emotions. I, I try not to label them as good or bad. They're all somewhat neutral. And it just depends on how you choose to use them. And as you said, how you choose to respond to feeling those things is what's most important because you know, I, I wouldn't want someone to think that feeling those means you're wrong or you're bad because they're human emotions. Just like you can't stop negative feeling, you can't stop yourself from feeling agitated or frustrated when certain triggers happen, but you can absolutely choose a response that's, that's more professional, more polite, more appropriate, what have you. Uh, so yeah, I, I love the, the distinctions that you're, you're creating here. Well, and I think if, if we boil it down, like to your point that you just made, is that it's all data. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's just data. Your, your, your brain is just producing something that's trying to get your attention for one reason or the other. And how we interpret that data can help us, right? And, and move us forward. It can also limit us and hold us back or it can create, it can keep us exactly where we are. And so like, to your point, when I get angry, anger is not necessarily a bad emotion. Right. Um, but anger to me is almost like it, it creates this like red flag to pay attention. Yes. You know, why, why are you, angry? so what it does, it creates curiosity in me mm. versus necessarily, and it, don't get me wrong. I mean, if you called my husband, he might say that like, okay, like, you know, you're just, you don't stop and just think red flag all the time. Like, no, I'm, I, I have emotions too. And I, and there are times where I do react to my anger versus stopping, slowing down and choosing how to respond. Um, but I will say that now when I have the emotions, it's, it's one thing to, to label them and say like, or to say, uh, label ourselves and say, I am angry. I am frustrated. And there's another thing to label it and to name it, right? Like Dan Thiel says, name it to tame it is by saying, I am feeling angry. Yes. I am feeling frustrated because the cool side effect of that is that you're actually sending soothing neurotransmitters to your brain that actually like take the emotion down a little bit because you're no longer identifying with it. You're just recognizing it and labeling it. And so, yeah, I, I just think that I love what you're like, what you're doing with your kids because oftentimes we identify and we label ourselves as being something when really that just might be how you're feeling. Yeah. Well, I know 
And, and I know my parents did the best they were capable of with the tools they had at the time. So I, I say this with a smile and all the love in my heart, but I basically grew up in a household where you were only allowed to show the good emotions and you were basically told to mask, suppress, resist the bad ones. And the, the logical thinking, which it obviously doesn't work, but it makes sense on a very rudimentary level is, you know, if you never act sad or frustrated or disappointed, then the only thing left are the good emotions. So everything is great. Uh, and I always found that created a lot of inner uh, conflict and some deep suited resentment in me. Like I would get angry when I was told that I couldn't express myself fully because I don't think there's anything wrong with feeling those things. And like you said, there's nothing wrong with feeling angry. Now we have to be careful about letting that anger lead to destructive behavior, you know, diminishing you know, comments to someone, you know, and that's the other thing I tell my children, it's okay to be angry. It's not okay to punch your brother, or it's not okay to say something disrespectful to your sister. Those are behavior things that you have to choose a better response for. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's incredibly liberating to say, however I'm feeling is okay. And that it's okay to not be okay, because eventually this will pass. I mean, no emotion lasts forever. I mean, in fact, they, they move through us much quicker than I think people think. Oh man, I love what you just said. I could not agree more. Like, especially when you, when you make the distinction, like it's okay to do this. It's not okay to do that. You know, it's okay. And so what we're doing is we're creating these boundaries. And I, I like the analogy I like to use is a fire. Fires can be really good, right? It can help us cook, keep us warm, light candles, but it can also be very destructive. Mm -hmm. It can burn down thousands of acres of forests and do a lot of damage. And so the question becomes, what are the boundaries of your emotions? And it's not necessarily the emotion itself, but it's how we respond to it, right? That it's okay to be frustrated. It's not okay to hit your brother. (laughs) It's okay to be angry. It's not okay to quit. It's okay to feel fear. It's not okay to allow that fear to control every decision you make. Mm. And so the, the message becomes, you know, be the bonfire, not the wildfire, mm-hmm. because the only difference is the boundary that we create around it. And that allows for containment of the fire so it doesn't turn into a wildfire. And so the more we learn where that boundary lies, the more we can begin to navigate it yeah. in a better way. Yeah, I love the analogies you use. You you create some brilliant imagery and some, you know, things that I can visualize and and they feel, you know, uh, so tangible. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about some of this has to do with our own perspective and our own biases that, you know, the the concept of even the acceptance of reality, uh, there'll be times I'm sure where your reality and my reality may slightly differ. I mean, even this recording, you know, whenever we hit stop, your recollection of this experience might be slightly different than mine for whatever reason. And again, this has nothing to do with good, bad, right, or wrong, but we see the world through our own lens. So the other thing is, is to realize there's a difference between the truth or a truth and my truth. And we have to be very careful. You had mentioned self-talk before about the stories we tell ourselves, because it's easy to look at something and say, that's the truth. Everybody else is looking at it and going, no, it isn't. And that's a, why, and, and it's feel free to disagree. I've never loved the term, and we hear it all the time now, it is what it is. I've never liked that saying because it, in my mind, it's not what it is, it's whatever you think it is. There's a big difference, you know, that I could have something sitting on my desk right now 
and you think it's different than I think it is because of our vantage point. So talk to me about the stories we tell ourselves, our perspective, and how important self-talk is in this whole concept of reality and acceptance. Oh, man. So many things. Like, like you just said like three things. I'm like, okay, which direction do I want to go in? I think, <laughs> I, want to start, you want. I think I want to start with this. And I was 15. I had my driver's permit. And I'm in my mom's 2001 Toyota Sequoia and my mom's sitting in the front seat, like sweating bullets and we're practicing. Okay. I'm practicing my driving and I'm on the freeway and, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm like doing everything I need to do. I'm like looking in my mirrors. I'm like, I'm, I'm putting on my blinker. I'm checking all this stuff. And so I, I think I did everything right. And I put on my blinker to get off the freeway and I get met with this woman just laying on her horn and that's when I learned what blind spots were <laughs> I was like oh so it's not just looking in your mirrors I also have to look over my shoulder and my mom saw it coming like the whole time and she's like I'm trying not to be like the mom that tells you what to do and then she's screaming I'm screaming and you know it's a whole thing yeah. and what I realized is that blind spots are these things that we know are there we know they exist, but sometimes we have a really hard time seeing them. Yeah. And so to your point, the person behind me, they probably saw the whole thing go down before it happened. They're like, oh, I see what's about to happen. Yep. Um, the person in the car probably either saw my blinker and they're like, uh-oh, I hope they're not coming over or they didn't see it at all. But the point is that each one of us had a different experience in that car. Yes. My mom did, I did, the person that laid on their horn and the person behind me. And so to your point is that we all have blind spots. Yes. And with your point that there's all these different vantage points, one of the ways that I've, I've learned to help improve my, our blind spots, because the thing is we're always going to have them. Yes. Always going to have them because we can never have the perspective of everybody around us. Right. But one of the ways that we can improve our blind spots and improve that perspective is to ask questions. And one of the best exercises I ever did, I was actually at a, uh, at a mastermind and the guy said, okay, what are your blind spots? And people, we all start raising our hand and like saying what our blind spots are. And he just goes wrong. You can't see them. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, I guess that's kind of right. I, I think some of us maybe they may have been things we became aware of, but yep. there's always something. And so he's like, I want you to leave and I want you to call somebody, not your mom, not your husband, not your wife, not your boyfriend. Like but somebody that knows you and that's willing to be honest, that you're, you trust and you're, that you're, is willing to be honest with you. And so I call, uh, I saw I call one of my good friends and I was like, hey, I wanna to talk to you about this. And we came up with a blind spot that I like, I have not noticed. Yeah. So I just think that um, when it comes to different perspectives, an important thing is not just, um, is not just you know, what your perspective is and owning that, but then also being open to maybe what are some other perspectives? What are yeah. some other people seeing that maybe you don't see? Um, and so I always think that that's always a good check-in for ourselves. Oh, I love that. And I love the distinction between having the humility to acknowledge, I know I have blind spots. I just don't know what they are specifically at the moment. So I want to constantly be open to feedback and constantly surround myself with people that care enough about me to tell me my blind spots and to help me see them. And then once they're brought into an awareness, now I can start to look at that as an opportunity for growth and make some improvement, but I know I'm still going to have another blind spot. We're never going to rid ourselves from all of them, but yeah, that, that is an incredibly powerful distinction. So, 
so many concepts there that we can integrate to so many different areas. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And then the other thing that you said that really stood out to me, which I really liked was this idea of the story that we tell ourselves. Because the story I could tell myself about that situation is, um, well, the lady didn't see my blinker. She got in my way and it's her fault that I almost hit her. I, that's the story. That's one story I could tell myself. Yep. Another story is, shoot, I didn't look over my shoulder <laughs> yep. and I didn't see her. And so that, and you, you take ownership there. So I think that it, there's so many different stories you can tell yourself. And the way that you describe your experience will, imp- it will influence how it impacts you. Yeah. So when I say it's her fault, my experience is totally different than saying like, oh, I own that. And I know that's really black and white in terms of stories that we can tell ourselves, but your your story about what you do, your experiences, your circumstances, your adversities, your your successes, those actually impact how you experience them. And so what we can do is that we can also alter our experience by altering the story we tell ourselves. Yeah. Well, you know what just popped into my head there? There's another story you could have told yourself, you know, which is I'm not a good driver. Like I'm just, I'm starting this new skill set, and oh my God, I just made a mistake. I'm not a good driver. And now as I connect a couple dots, it sounds similar to what you were saying before. Like there's a difference between I am angry and I am feeling, you know, I'm having some feelings of anger or frustration that there's a separation. It's the same thing. So you made a mistake. You made a common mistake that many drivers that have been driving for 40 years still make, but you you choose not to give yourself the label of I'm not a good driver. And I can see how that manifests in so many different areas. Um, but we just have to be careful of telling ourselves that story, you know, and especially with, you know, I'd love to learn more about the work you did specifically with the Yankees and working with the world's best athletes in a game where you tend to fail eight to seven to eight times. And you're still really good at what you do, you know, that, that you might go on a streak where you don't get a hit for a handful of at bats, and you have to have the resiliency not to tell yourself, well, I, I don't belong in the major leagues. I'm not a very good player. I'm, n- I'm not a good hitter. I'm never going to get a hit. But we can all empathize with how easy it is to let that type of you know, negative talk uh, get inside of our heads and start to spiral out of control. So talk to me a little bit about your experience with the Yankees and, and, and kind of tying some of these themes and threads together. Yeah. So, oh, my gosh. I was, I I loved my time at the Yankees. I was really lucky. I worked, I worked underneath some incredible people. Um, I worked under Chad Bowling and Chris Passarella and I got to my, my coworkers were just absolutely incredible. And so all of us uh, worked as a team, you know, throughout our system and really helping to provide services to our players, our staff and kind of everything in between. And, um, one of the things it's actually funny when you were talking about like, you know, failing a lot. I actually uh, had that, I mean, that happened quite a lot, right? Where, where guys would really fail and then they would come and chat with me about it or they would want some help on navigating it. And this one player in particular, he came up to me and he was in a slump, okay? He was over 15, just like mm-hmm. not, not good. Um, and he's like, Lauren, I don't know what to do. Like I have done everything. And he's like, again, again, to that, to that self-talk, like if I can't perform at this level, what makes me think I can be a major leaguer? And so I stopped and I asked him, I said, uh, I said, okay, well, why don't we talk about this? I said, how do you define success? Like, how do you know you're successful at the plate? He's like, 
Oh, I get a hit. I said, okay. So it's the result. It's the outcome of what you do that gets that. That is that that is success to you. And he's like, yes. And they said, okay, well, here's why we're going to, we're going to change that a little bit. I was like, we're going to change your definition because if your definition of success is always outside of your control, you will become controlled by it. And man, do I relate to this so much because I used to attach my worthiness to my outcomes. Me too. So when I succeeded, I was just on top of the world. And when I wasn't, I was worthless. And so what you end up doing is you ride this roller coaster of, of emotions and of I'm good, I'm worthy. And then I'm crap. Why am I even doing this? I, I can't even make it anyway. And so it's this whole emotional roller coaster that's unsustainable to performance. Yeah. And so I asked him, I said, okay, let's pretend. Let's pretend that you couldn't define success that way. That success was everything up until making contact with the ball. If that was the case, like, and I just said, okay, you did everything at the plate. Okay. I was like, let's pretend you did everything at the plate. Right. How would you define success? Because I said, think about this. Have you ever done everything right and got a bad result? <laughs> he was like, yeah. Yeah. And I said, have you ever done everything wrong and somehow got lucky and got a good result? Like, yeah. I was like, right. The point is that good results are not always the result of good things. Mm. Results don't make us better. Executing the right things do. So let's make, let's make our new definition of success, your ability to execute the right things that put you in a position to succeed more often than not. So I said, so what would that be? If from the moment you get to the plate to the moment the, the play is over, what or to the moment, sorry, you, you make contact with the ball. If there's only three things, what are the three things that if you do those things, those will, those equate to success, whether or not you get a hit. Mm-hmm. He's like, all right. Number one, being on time. Great. His timing when it was on, it really put him in a good position. Number two, swinging at the right pitch. So having an idea ahead of time, what he's going to swing at and committing to that pitch. And then number two, having, or number three, having an external focus, not focused so much on his mechanics, but focusing on where he wants to hit the ball. So I was like, right. So if you do those three things and do not get the result you want, did you do everything in your power? He's like, yep, that's success. And so what we did was we created this new definition for him, because oftentimes when our definition is outside of us, we feel out of control. Of course. We feel helpless. Yeah. We feel like a victim to our circumstances, to our outcomes. And so what we did is we shifted the control back where he is now back in the driver's seat. He's no longer a passenger riding along. And when he did that and he was able to focus on the things he could control, that's when he started seeing success because he was no longer focused so much on the outcome. He was focused on the process and doing the right things that eventually over time kept leading to better outcomes. I mean, I love every word of what you just said. And there's so much value in that. I mean, first of all, in summary, it's that old Bill Walsh, uh, you know, mantra of if you do what you're supposed to do, the scoreboard will take care of itself. Like we don't have to talk about winning. We just talk about executing every single down and the winning will just take care of itself. And uh, it's the same thing. And I, I love that you have the humility to acknowledge that when you aligned your own self-worth with outcomes, you were on this miserable roller coaster. And, and I've been a victim of that as well. You know, if, if our, if our self-worth is tied to our achievement, then anytime we fall short of a goal, we're going to feel bad. And that's, that is just a tough way to live. And, and, and I love that you're bringing this stuff up because it's not even just about performance, which 
you know, is why people pay you the big bucks. But this is also about happiness and fulfillment and having some contentment and inner peace and saying, hey, I did the best I was capable of today. Yeah, I went over three, but I had my three checklists that Lauren gave me and I did those things each at bat. I'll get them next time. And it's a great way to kind of, once again, disassociate. I'm not a good hitter with, oh, I just didn't get a hit today. And there's a huge difference between those two. But yeah, I think anytime we can become more process focused and just love the work, be thankful to have an at-bat wearing a Yankees uniform. Be thankful for an opportunity to take some cuts when a major leaguer is throwing pitches and, and just focus on the part you have control over. And I'm, I would love to see that case study and how he did in his next 10 at-bats because I bet he got back on track after you helped him. Um, he did. He, he did. Uh, he did get back. It was, it was a few years ago, but I was there for a, a few days. And, um, and in actually that game, he got a hit. And I think, and I, I, he knew it. I mean, he was a very self-aware guy, but the point of it all is that is again, to your point that, you know, when we, when we take our mind out of thinking so far ahead um, and, and focusing so much on the future and the outcome that we want that we, and, and we're focused back in the present moment, we're able to perform our best. It's that mind body connection that oftentimes results or mistakes pull us away from because our mind is the only thing that can exist in the past, present and future. And so thinking about the outcome pulls us into that future and thinking about our past mistakes pulls us into the past. And when your mind is too far in the past or too far in the future, it impacts your ability in the present. And so, you know, when he was thinking about, oh my gosh, I'm over 15, like he's thinking about all those past things. Oh, I have to get a hit. He's thinking about the future and he's not focused on the things he can control in the moment that he's in. And that ultimately impacts your ability to perform. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for investing your time with us. I hope we helped you raise your game. But before I sign off, another quick reminder to check out The Sideline, a survival guide for youth sports parents at thesidelinebook.com. This book has one goal, to help parents and coaches successfully navigate the world of youth sports. If you have a child that plays youth or high school sports or you coach youth or high school sports, you need this book. Trust me. Check out thesidelinebook.com. Once again, that's thesidelinebook.com. Hit it!